from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. When you read through the Gospels, um, every one of them has the Passion Week narrative, the, the Easter narrative, usually starting on Palm Sunday with the triumphal entry and the events that lead up to the crucifixion and then the resurrection. Uh, some are really quick, right? You go to the book of Mark, it's, it's a very fast-paced gospel. You've probably noticed that the gospel of Mark is, is the shortest gospel because Mark is very fast-paced. It's, uh, it, he's just moving from one event to the next event to the next event to the next event. And, and, and so you get to the Passion Week with Mark, and it, it's, it's a very quick happening. You compare that with John, and you get to the book of John, and you realize, wow, almost uh, 60, 70 percent of the book of John is really that last week. There's very little at the front end of Jesus' ministry, but you get to the back end, and it's very detailed in, in what is happening. You get to Luke, and he has recorded the eyewitness events that have happened as well. And then you come to Matthew, and we see that even in Matthew, there's a good portion of the book of Matthew that is focused on the gospel uh, or, or the Passion Week, that final week of Jesus' life. And in each one, there's a, a slightly different emphasis. As you read the gospels, you notice that every one is different. It reads differently. Uh, it sounds differently because each one has, has a different emphasis to it. And when you come to the book of Matthew and you read really from Matthew 1 all the way to the, to the end, the, the key word that seems to, to go with Matthew's gospel and the Passion Week is the word appointed. That everything is happening is appointed. It's not just random. And as you come to the Passion Week, Matthew really drives that point home. Because he wants us to see these events not as random events, right? Many of the people who have come to Jerusalem for the Passover that week are going to see the same events. If they don't see them, they're going to hear about them, right? The entire city is stirred because this prophet of Nazareth has entered the city. So everybody is hearing it. Everybody's saying, hey, he came in. Everybody heard, hey, he went to the temple and, and turned over the temple. Everybody's heard that he cursed the fig tree. Everybody is going to hear about the trials that he's going to go through. People are going to line up to see the crucifixion. Everybody is going to see this. And I bet many people, as we sometimes do when we see a series of events, see it nothing more than just happenstance. Well, Jesus was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? We, we've said that, right? You, well, you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or the positive, you know, I was just in the right place at, at, at the right time. See it as a disjointed series of events where one doesn't necessarily tie in to the other. And when you see events like that, you seem to think, all right, well, this person, and in the case of the gospel, you know, Jesus wasn't really in control. It was Caiaphas and the high priest over here who were in control orchestrating his arrest. Or it was Pilate over here who was in control because Jesus just was before him and doesn't speak. Jesus isn't really in control. He just becomes a pawn in a bigger scheme. Well, when you read Matthew's gospel, you can't help to go, that's not true. 
Because Matthew is directing our attention to the, the fact that, that everything is happening in accordance to God's plan. And the events that are happening have been appointed. And in this particular section in Matthew 26, 17 through 30, the backdrop is the Passover. And, and Matthew records the events that happen around the Passover in these verses. And he says, look, they're not disjointed events. They were appointed events for a specific purpose that none of these things caught Jesus unaware and the more we seem to understand that they were appointed the more then we see the willingness of Christ to go to the cross for our sins and understand you, you know he did this knowing what was going to happen and so Matthew draws our attention to that this morning. And as we read through the text, he's going to draw our attention to the appointed time, the appointed betrayal, and the appointed death. So let's read Matthew 26, 17 through 30. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when, he had said, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this morning, the first thing I want you to notice is Jesus' appointed time. He says that in verse 18, my time is at hand. Another way of pointing that is, it is the appointed time. And it's the appointed time for the Passover feast. Now, you may be thinking, well, Gary, isn't the Passover feast the same every year? Basically, yes. Now, remember, for the reason that Easter is different is because it moves with the moon and that, and so it's a different pattern. That's why it's always a different date. Unlike Easter, or excuse me, unlike Christmas, December 25th, you can plan on it. Easter moves throughout the year. And so the same thing with the Passover. They knew approximately when it would be, but it was always appointed to occur at, the, at a specific time. And so Jesus says, hey, it's, it's the appointed time to go and have the Passover, but at the same time, it, it's my appointed time as well to have this meal because in a few minutes we're going to see Jesus do something really amazing with that Passover meal. 
And so he gives them the instructions. And he says, we're told it's the first day of the unleavened bread, which was a festival that took place after the Passover. So the Passover would be one day, and then you'd have a seven-day festival that followed it. And as things sometimes do, when one follows the other, they just take on the same name, and it becomes the same event. So to say the unleavened bread is also to say the Passover. It's just become one event. And Jesus tells them, Go and get, get it ready. Go get the Passover meal ready. Now, you, I, I, just, I don't know how to state the importance of this meal other, other than to say it was a really important meal. <laughs> All right? the, the, the Passover was so important because the Passover meal was appointed by God. Right? It, it was the meal that the people of Israel were commanded to eat there as the final plague in Egypt was about to occur, occur. And God gave them very, very specific instructions. You can go back to Exodus 12 and you can read all about those instructions. But one of the instructions he gave them, he said, look, you are to do this throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And you go and read the Old Testament, you could see they sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. They weren't the best in keeping that command. But when they did keep it, and if you were going to keep it, and here Jesus and his disciples are going to keep it, you had to keep it in a very specific way. Remember, I've harped on this before as we've talked about it. In the Old Testament, worship was prescribed. It was detailed, and you didn't deviate from what God had prescribed you to do. And when it came to the Passover, they had very specific instructions, especially when you look at verse 19, it says the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Right? We don't know what Jesus told them to do, but we know that as good Jewish men, they knew what to do. They had to go get the lamb. They had to take it to the temple. They had to sacrifice it. They had to prepare it. They had to get the herbs used in the meal. They had to get the bread. They had to get the wine. They had to set the table up. They had to put the dishes out. Everything was prescribed. Everything had to be done exactly right. And Jesus says, with the backdrop of the Passover, it is my appointed time, my time has come. So he's going to go with them and he's going to have the Passover meal with them just as he is supposed to. It's his appointed time. Now, they may get lost on this thinking, well, Jesus, it's, it's the Passover. It's always the appointed time. And Jesus says, no, no, no. My time has, has come. My time has come. And it's appointed for me to eat this Passover with you. Remember in Luke, he tells us, I long to eat the Passover with you because we know the end. Sometimes it's so hard to preach through the Bible or read the Bible because we know what comes next, right? We know what's about to happen down in verse 28, but the disciples don't. They're still thinking that they're going to go celebrate the Passover, and the Passover for the, for, the, for the Israel and the Jewish community would look, tell me if this sounds familiar, would look backwards at God's redemption, right? Redeeming them out of slavery. 
It would look at the present, giving them strength for the journey. But then the Passover looked forward to the promised land. And throughout all the years, as the the Jewish people would eat this, they would recite this year in bondage, next year in the land of promise. They They were looking forward to it. And so the disciples are going to go through and they're going to, they're going to have this meal. Remember, they're still kind of clueless, right? This, this, this is, they need to bless their hearts in here, right? Mary understands. We saw that. She knows what's happening. Jesus keeps saying it to them, but they just, they just, it's just not penetrating, They think they're just going to go eat the meal. But Jesus knows what is coming because as he eats the meal, he's going to take that meal and he's going to use it and transform it into the Lord's Supper as we know it. Why? Because it's the appointed time. It's the appointed time for the Passover meal. Think about what's about to happen. It's the appointed time for the Passover meal to pass into history and for the Lord's Supper to be instituted. How many of you here this morning have ever had a Passover meal? We don't celebrate the Passover meal. What do we celebrate? We celebrate the Lord's Supper because it was the appointed time in God's plan for the Passover meal to become part of history because it's foreshadowing right remember you go to the book of hebrews and it talks about all the old testament sacrifices in the temple and it says it was but a shadow of the good things to come and one of the shadows was the passover meal pointing forward to the lord's supper and this is the last meal this is this one of the reasons we call it the last supper this is the last meal that jesus eats with his disciples before the crucifixion. He doesn't eat again. It it is the last meal that they will eat under the old covenant. Again, we don't think about that. But in one year, they may still go to Passover because they're, they're still Jewish and everything, but they don't need to. It's why by the time we get to the Corinthians, Paul is writing about this is how you come to the Lord's table because they're not eating the meal under the old covenant before. Just, just, just think about it for a minute. Put yourself in, in, pick a disciple that you identify with the most. And I know all of you are going, well, I was John because Jesus would love me the most. <laughs> Some of y'all are Peter. Right? You're... You're a grown man. You've eaten the Passover your entire life. Go to the next year when you're supposed to be part of the Passover and eat the Passover, and you don't. I I don't, how would you react? How would you feel if you didn't have Christmas this year? You had Christmas all your life. I'm not going to have Christmas. I'm not going to have Thanksgiving. How would you feel? Now magnify that exponentially because you had to keep the Passover as part of the Old Covenant. And Jesus is saying it's the appointed time for that Passover meal to go into history and the institution of the Lord's Supper. Because what we're going to find out, what we're going to find out is that year in Jerusalem. Listen to this. This is good. 
the very last Passover lamb was slain. Because in three days, the true lamb of God is going to die on the cross for our sins. And there's never going to be need for another lamb. They will never slaughter another lamb. We can't quite comprehend that. But this is what's happening because it was the appointed time for the fulfillment of everything the Passover meal pointed to to be fulfilled in Christ. He says, it's my time. It's my appointed time. At the same time, it was also Jesus' appointed betrayal. We read in verse 20 through 25 and and we touched briefly on this last week about how Judas had gone out to the chief priest to hand Jesus over. Again, it just looks like Jesus isn't in control of the events. Because Judas just goes and do that, does this. And, and how can he not know it's happening all around him? But verse 21 kind of says, no, that's, that's not really true, is it? Because as they were eating, Jesus said truly. And when Jesus said truly, you know what truly means? That's, that's kind of like, uh, pay attention. You know, that's kind of like parents trying to do whatever, stomping their feet, clapping their hands, doing something to get the kid's attention. This is Jesus. Jesus says, truly, everything stops and eyes come on him. He says, truly, one of you will betray me. Jesus knows what's about to occur. It's, it's, it's been written. Right? Verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Put yourself in Judas's shoes for just a minute. I guarantee you he's sitting there going, okay, wait a minute, I went out. It was dark. And I, I did, I've read spy novels, that's why I know what this is. I did a, a surveillance detection run, which I didn't know until I read spy novels, where you walk and then you turn back the other way and you use the, the, the glass to look in to see if anybody's following you and you hide behind a lamppost and you do all this. Judas was going, I walked and I kept looking, wasn't nobody behind me. I, I, I went to the priest, it was night, it was dark. How, how did he find out? And then Judas is probably thinking, well, wait a minute. He just says one of you. Okay, he doesn't really know it's me. I'm, I'm, I'm in the clear. I, 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 got, I got away with it. I can continue my plan. You know, I got $20 waiting on me when I get this done. He thinks he's in the clear. He thinks that, that Jesus doesn't know, that he, Jesus doesn't know what's going to happen. Jesus says, wait a minute. I know that one of you is going to. It's appointed for this to happen. One of you is going to betray me. Now, the interesting thing about this text, and one of the things that just really got me when we, when we saw him as he gathered at his table, is there is a tremendous amount of intimacy in these verses that Matthew is trying to convey to us. Right? Because it says, look at the words. He says, when he reclined at the table with the twelve, they were eating, dip, being able to dip your hand in the same dish, Judas talking to him. I mean, there is a tremendous level of intimacy going on in this meal. Right? How many of you have seen uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper, right? That basically has the, Jesus and his disciples at a picnic table? Probably didn't look like that. Okay? Most likely that what they would have had were three short tables in a U-shaped pattern 
with the table with the elements in the middle that they could reach. And by this time, one of the ways that they would eat was kind of inspired by the Romans. How many of you have seen pictures of like the uh, uh, Romans of somebody laying on the couch on their left side and eating grapes with their right hand? That's kind of how they would eat some of their meals. And so what you would have were these low tables with the disciples kind of in this, this half-reclined position eating together. And if you're like that, you can't help but bump into each other. Jesus says, it's the one who dips hand in the bowl with me. Again, a, a symbol of intimacy. You're, you're right there close enough, and they're going, it's a communal bowl. So sometimes people go, well, how didn't everybody know? Because everybody's dipping their hands. You know what this is updated to today? This is everybody at your table eating out of the salsa bowl. Right? It, that's, that's what it is. Because the people at the other table aren't coming to dip their nachos. I hope they're not coming to dip their nachos into your salsa bowl. But everybody at that table, everybody's close enough. Pick up a chip, grab a salsa. Right? Intimacy. It, it's close. And they're all, it's, it's heightening the fact that somebody in his immediate circle... A close friend is going to betray them, betray Jesus. And he says to them, hey, you're going to betray me in verse 22. They're very sorrowful. And they start asking one after another, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And as I was writing that, I found it fascinating. And this is what got me with the hymn. Does anybody else find that question interesting? I mean, I stopped and I started thinking about it. Again, we know the answer. The answer to 11 of those questions is no, 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 no. Yet every one of the disciples asked the question. What does that tell you about their hearts? I mean, I don't think it tells you that they're all considering betraying Jesus. At the same time, it tells you that all of them are examining themselves and going, could I be the one who would do it? Could I be the one who betrays Jesus? W will it be me? But we also know the answer. The answer is yes. While we read the text and we go, it's 11 no's and one yes to Judas because we know Judas hands them over. The answer to the 11 disciples also is yes. You know this man. No, I don't. I've seen you with this man. I, you know him. No, I don't. Your accent gives you away. You're from Galilee just as he was. You were with this man. I was not. I, and I just, I just stopped. Because if the disciples, the eleven who don't betray him, can look in their hearts and go, is it me? And then we know the answer is, yes, it is. Not that they turn him over to the authorities like Judas does, but they all betray him and deny him and flee. That becomes a hard question to then turn around and ask of yourself. Is it I? How many of you just glossed over that verse in the hymn, didn't even think about it. Is it I? Well, well, that wow, that hymn writer did a great job reporting what Matthew said in the gospel. 
Or is it a question that maybe we ought to reflect on and, and look on ourselves? How do we betray Jesus? Well, Gary, I would never turn him over to the authority. Well, you can't turn him over to the authority, so let's just get rid of that one. How do we betray Jesus in our lives? Well, Jesus continues and says, look, it's been written. Again, pointing to the fact that it has been appointed, and he's most likely quoting from Isaiah, probably somewhere between 42 and 53, the, the suffering serving text, where he's just maybe taking those all together and, and puts them because he gives us no indication of where he's going. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It'd be better if that person wasn't even born because every sin has a consequence. Every sin has a consequence. And it's going to have a consequence for the one who betrays Jesus. It has an eternal consequence for the one who betrays Jesus all the way up to the end. It's what we read in Psalm 21 this morning. When Jesus comes back and gets those who continue to stand against him, he doesn't come back as a benevolent king to them. He comes back as a ruling and conquering king to establish his kingdom over the people who have fought against him. And he will emerge victorious. And so at this point, again, we sung it in the hymn. And I can't remember the exact line, but, but, but it was even for the betrayer or the betrayer who was there. Because Judas then turns to Jesus and says, is it I, Rabbi? Now, first of all, notice he doesn't call him Lord. He says, teacher. Is it me, teacher? Right? We already saw last week that whatever it was going on in Judas' life and heart, Jesus just wasn't enough for him. Can't even say Lord. Was it, was it me, teacher? And Jesus says, you have said so. If they're at the table, and Judas, Jesus is here, and Judas is over here, and Judas asks that question, and Jesus answers that question, everybody would know, would they not? When you go back and you read the Gospels, it's almost an afterthought that they include it was Judas. Again, highlighting they didn't know. Judas, who would betray him. Even at that, right? It doesn't say, Judas said, is it I? Jesus said, yes. Therefore, we know it's Judas who's the real betrayer, right? Matthew doesn't write that. It's almost like he still doesn't understand it until he writes it as a, a uh, it, it happened later we came to realize but the only way that that could happen where the rest of the disciples didn't hear is when you start thinking about, well, where was Judas at the table? And the simplest answer for that would be Judas would have been next to Jesus. To be able to whisper into his ear so that no one else could hear. And if you're sitting next to the host, you're sitting in one of the favored places. Jesus over and over and over is showing his love for Judas. Even answering him, yes, it is you. Can you imagine Jesus going, I'm waiting, not for the betrayal, but I'm waiting. You can repent. You can repent right now. Giving him the opportunity. 
But it wasn't enough. And so Judas was going to continue to go forward with the appointed betrayal. But then finally, we get to the appointed death. It was time for the Passover meal to begin. And Jesus as host, he he takes the meal and and he's going to transform it. He's going to do something really different. Again, normative, prescriptive ways of worship. Normal, prescriptive ways to handle the Passover. Jesus takes the bread, normal. Blesses it, normal. Breaks it, normal. Take, eat, this is my body. Whoa, that's a little bit different. That's not what we've said for 1,400 years. He takes the cup, normal. Gives thanks, normal. Drink all of it. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood in the new covenant. Whoa, hold on. Jesus, I'm not sure what Passover order of service you're reading off of, but that's not what I've got over here. Because Jesus has taken the Passover meal and, and given it, I hate to say a new meaning, but the, the ultimate meaning, the, the fulfillment of it in both the bread and the wine. And as he is doing that, he's directing his disciples to his appointed death. To the time to come when his body would be beaten, when the soldiers would scourge him, when the crown of thorns would be pushed down on his head, when his body would be nailed to the cross. He points to the blood that's going to be shed as he's flogged, as the the crown comes down and causes him to bleed, as the swipes go through the hands, then the blood that is going to drip. And he says, look, take this bread, it's my body, take this this wine, it's it's my blood. And can you imagine, I mean, first of all, I think they're going to be shocked, but then secondly, I think they're going to be revulsed, right? Right? Because in every culture, no matter what culture you go to, the, the, the idea of eating flesh and drinking the blood of another person is just an abomination. And yet, this is what Jesus is telling him. He's saying to them, look, I'm, I'm the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And he calls his disciples and calls us to feed off of him so that we will never go hungry, to nourish us spiritually. That we are constantly and continually dependent upon the death of Jesus Christ. As a believer, we can't get away from that. And then he takes the wine and says, this is the blood of the new covenant. Now you go to the Old Testament and you read about the covenants in the Old Testament and they were always sealed in blood. They were sealed in blood. It is what bound God to them and, and, and man to God. But they couldn't keep the Mosaic Covenant, right? And, and I'm sure that that's what they're thinking about. The Old Covenant is usually referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. And, you know, they couldn't keep it. That was the one that said, I will be your God. You will be my people if you obey me and do what I called you to do. God fulfills his promises. The people can't do it. So by the time we come to Jeremiah... We get to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. When I read these verses, tell me if anything is missing. See if you pick up on something isn't there. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. He talks about the new covenant. What did he not mention? There's no blood. There's no blood in Jeremiah 31 through 34. Where's the blood? How is this new covenant going to become part of the covenant of God if there's no blood? The Mosaic covenant was instituted with blood, with a lot of blood. It was sustained and kept by a blood, by a lot of blood. A lot of blood of bulls, a lot of blood of goats, a lot of blood of sheep, a lot of blood. It was constantly kept and instituted in blood. You get to the new covenant and you read that passage and go, where's the blood? How can this covenant be in effect if there's no blood? Until Jesus looks at him and says, take this wine, take this cup, drink it. And he says, this is the cup, what? For this is my blood of the covenant. Jesus is looking at them and saying, look, the new covenant is being inaugurated right now. You're witnessing it. It's the appointed time. My death is the appointed means to inaugurate the new covenant. And through my death, he is telling them that his death is going to be the central aspect to the relationship between God and the people of God. It's not going to be a covenant based on whether or not they could keep the covenant, right? Jeremiah 31, I'm going to have to give them a new covenant because they couldn't keep mine. But I'm going to give them a new covenant that's not going to be based on whether or not they can keep my covenant, but it's going to be a covenant that's established based on the fact that Jesus perfectly kept the law and then shed his blood so that we can have the forgiveness of sins. Because in the Old Testament, they understood that without the shedding of the blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. I mean, isn't that amazing? He doesn't look at them and say, this is my blood of the new covenant so that you can do better. This isn't my blood of the new covenant so that you can now obey the rules in a better way to keep the covenant. He says, no, no, this is my blood that I'm shedding for you for the new covenant, inaugurating the new covenant. Now, everything about the new covenant is going to be kept in me. And I'm going to pour out my blood as the ultimate Passover lamb to seal the new covenant through which you can have forgiveness of your sins. It was the appointed time. It was the appointed time for the forgiveness of sins to be realized. Matthew starts and hints at this. Matthew one twenty one says, She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, what? From their sins. Matthew 26, My time is at hand, 
It is the appointed time for my death. It is the appointed time for the new covenant to be inaugurated in my blood, which will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Everything that Jesus does in the Passion Week, from the beginning to the end, was an appointed mission that he would fulfill so that you and I and all whoever will can have forgiveness of their sins. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.